Welcome back to the Anthrophiles. Uh, today we are talking about museums, and I think that they're one of the best learning tools that the world has to offer. But have you ever wondered about where those artifacts come from? Today we're going to talk about the British Museum and how they amass such a large and contentious collection, and even about my own interest in the museum field. I'm Katrina. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And let's get started. Yay! <laughs> So the British Museum is the world's largest world history museum, and it holds more than 8 million artifacts from many different countries. To understand how Britain obtained so many artifacts, you need a brief history of their empire. So beginning in the late 1600s, their empire expanded across several continents and became the largest empire in history. As we know, the sun never sets on the British Empire, that little <laughs> saying. <laughs> so. Obviously, having a centuries-long rule, they took precious resources and wealth from all over the world, especially cultural and historical artifacts, and many of those ended up in the British Museum. It was founded in 1753 and kept growing to accommodate all the new pieces, and many are legally acquired and are undisputed. However, there are quite a few pieces that are disputed, and I'll give you some examples. The first is the Rosetta Stone. So this was taken by British troops from the French in Egypt. The Parthenon sculptures, which were removed from the Acropolis in Greece by a British lord and sent to the museum. And the Benin bronzes, which I would consider maybe the most contentious at the moment. And they include a large range of items. So not just the traditional what you think bronze things. So there's engraved ivory tusks, plaques, and engraved bronze sculptures, and these are from the kingdom of Benin in modern-day Nigeria. So that story starts in the 1500s. The Benin bronzes were decorative visual archives of the kingdom because they did not have written script, so it narrated their history of kingship in their kingdom. In 1897, they lost thousands of the pieces due to the European colonial powers expanding south in what we call the scramble for Africa. I'm sure you guys know yes. what that is. Do you want to talk about a little bit of background information? Ooh, okay. I haven't learned about the scramble for Africa in a couple years, but like I know it was when all like the major colonial powers like England, France, Spain, like the Germ, not Germany didn't really exist yet, but like those places were mm -hmm. all trying to get the colonies over in Africa so they could um, profit off of its resources and stuff like that. Right. Anything else? Have we covered <laughs> it? Yeah. So basically what happened was these European colonial powers split up the continent into spheres of influence for financial gain, and Benin was in Britain's sphere of influence, um, where Nigeria is. So... The big disaster, what we call the Benin disaster, was in January of 1897 when they did not comply to Britain's trade demands. And so we all know what happens when you don't comply with a <laughs> colonial power's trade demands. So seven British emissaries and guides and servants and 1,200 British troops went to Benin in a punitive expedition. And it was all about revenge about that trade agreement, and they went to get treasures in the palace. They figured that the sales of that would offset the cost of the invasion, so they were armed with machine guns, and they burned the city to the ground before taking thousands of artifacts. They piled them up, they photographed them, and they labeled them in salute. 
So that's important to note. Mm. And the prosperous kingdom was gone and under British control until 1960 when Nigeria gained independence. So I feel like this is a pretty good example of lasting colonial consequences. Mm -hmm. It's also just so crazy to think that places like Nigeria haven't had like their own rule over themselves. Like 1960s when they were able to do that, which is very recently. Yeah, it does seem extremely recent. And I feel like you don't learn about that Mm -hmm. a lot in school. Yeah, I didn't learn about that until my freshman year here, about, like, India and um, Britain's colonial rule there. Mm-hmm. Like, my mom and dad were born in the 60s. Like, that is very yeah, recent no, in s- history. Exactly. Or even, like, um, how, like, Britain's, like, national dish is chicken tikka masala, which, like, has Indian origins to it. Like, yeah. you can see that there's so much yeah. influence on both sides, and it's, it's, like, crazy to think that it's because of the colonial powers that England had. Right. So... I have a little side story that I thought was really interesting in my research. And this is about uh, Mark Walker. Walker? <laughs> Mark Walker. He is the grandson of Captain Herbert Walker, who was a British soldier that was a part of this punitive expedition um, where thousands of items were looted, as we talked about. He has recently loaned these objects to the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is in Oxford, another really big museum in Britain. And they're going to display them before they're returned to the royal court of Benin. And this is what he said. He said, what we're learning is that restitution can take many forms. This seems to be something completely new that we're doing and that we're able to support the wishes of a private individual to restitute their own object. Um, So two wooden ceremonial paddles were brought back that were brought back by him in 1897 and remained in his family. So think about that. This was something that he took privately and remained in his own family that wasn't even displayed. Um, And he became aware that they were from this Benin collection after seeing similar ones in a different museum on their website. So this very popular, renowned scholar named Dan Hicks got in touch with him about his grandfather's journal and the paddles that he had when he began his own work on restitution. And there's no set date for their return, but Hicks and the Pitt Rivers Museum should be displaying these items next to its current Benin cabinet and work to repatriate them. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So next, I wanted to talk about my own interest in museums. Um, And next year, I will be going to graduate school to get my master's in public history. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So what got me interested in this was obviously my experiences at Quinnipiac most recently. And I think one of the best experiences that I've had here is going to the Museum of Natural History in New York City to explore the exhibits. And what we were told, this was our final project, that we had to look for Orientalist ideas that were on display, look for different cultures that we had learned about in the semester. But I want to tell you guys a little bit about what Orientalism is first, because I think that's super important. So it was first investified by Edward Said, and he defined it as a set of beliefs, ideas, and vision of the Orient. So that's the East, that was constructed and created by Western scholars who studied the Orient during the imperial period. So this included its history that was rewritten, its religion that was reinterpreted, and the Western vision of art, literature, and the actual human body constructed to suit a specific purpose. And this purpose was basically the West describing itself by presenting the East as the opposite, because they went in with the thinking that 
the people that they were meeting were fundamentally different. And we've talked about this before. So the West wanted to define itself by creating its opposite. And the West thought of itself as scientific, so it cast the East as spiritual or religious. The West felt it was progressive, so the East was naturally tradition-bound. If the West thought it was civilized, the East was barbaric, etc. And I think there's a few modern examples that we could talk about that kind of ties this all together. Um, so I want to see if you guys could think of any after hearing that definition. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think especially um, in in the U.S., I feel like that does happen a lot with um, some groups. I feel like you hear it a lot about immigrants, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hear, you know, like phrases like they're coming in hordes um, and stuff like that that make them sound kind of scary and barbaric. So that way you can like bolster up your side and opinion of of like you know like really tight borders and stuff like that if mm-hmm. that makes any sense that's yeah. the first similarity that came into my mind when you yeah. were talking about that i feel like there's also um a lot in pop culture mm-hmm. and like you guys are film majors so i think that you've both probably seen aladdin and also indiana jones temple yes. of doom mm-hmm. so yeah so the the lyrics from arabian nights and aladdin are as follows. I come from a land from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam, where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. So those words like faraway place, barbaric, are perfect examples of Orientalism and that othering of, um, you know, they're barbaric, they're different, Mm -hmm. they're tradition-bound. And then with Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom, um, there's a dinner scene, and they're in, in India, where they, you know, are trying to show in the movie that the people in India haven't been introduced to Western manners mm-hmm. or cuisine. So they're eating snakes and spiders and monkey brain soup. And it portrays Indian culture as savage as they're, like, consuming these, like, inedible and abnormal meals. And the woman that's with Indiana Jones, like, in his party, she's, like, absolutely horrified and disgusted. And, like, her refusal to eat those things is a reflection of like the audience's own disapproval and Mm -hmm. disgust so again like you said it's this othering it's constructing them as different so um basically it's providing a rationalization for european colonialism and it's based on a self-serving history and according to said orientalism dates back to the late 1700s and the napoleonic invasion of egypt and the groundwork was laid during the Enlightenment, but the practice didn't kick in until the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So obviously looking through this lens, it's assumptions and preconceived notions that distort the view of anyone that looks through it. And that's basically what we were looking for in the museum. And I was shocked to find that I had been naive in visiting museums for my whole life. And I was always so enamored by what they held and never stopped to think about like these potential shortcomings. Like you go to museums to learn you think that they're telling you the whole truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like this epiphany that I had after this final about museums, and it's really got me into it. That's really interesting because I think, like you said, when you go to a museum, you're not going there with a critical eye. You're thinking, like, the museum's the educator, and it's going to teach me, and everything that they say is true and right. But then when you approach it with a more critical eye and you think a little bit deeper about, like, the information that you're consuming and you critique it a little bit, you you see, like, the Orientalist ideas, like you were saying, Katrina. And I never thought about that before until you said it, like, right now, but it makes total sense, especially because, like, 
the foundations of the museums are based off of colonialism. Exactly. And if you guys remember, in the class that we all took together, Forensic Anthropology, um, we watched the film Who Owns the Past? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it talks about how many people are naive and a little bit ignorant to the problematic collections. And, you know, it's the same with Bone Rooms, like the book we all read. Um, There's a lot of ethical problems that relate to these artifacts, the human remains, and the way that other people's stories are told when there's so much background information that we're not getting. Yeah. Any comments about Bone Rooms, Emily? Um, We love to talk about it here. (laughs) We do. We're just like an Um, advertisement for that book at this point. (laughs) He's sponsored. (laughs) Yeah, and I think um, people don't realize or maybe forget that all of these artifacts, or at least a lot of them, and like these stories were written at a time where ethics was not of the utmost importance in people's minds. Right. So I think some of like the truth gets lost in like you know what the artifacts actually are like who the cultures actually are and that's kind of you know upsetting but also going back to like the museums and like going in thinking like well this is the truth like it's a museum like you know um you read the plaques and you're like well it's on the plaque so it must be true exactly (laughs) so i think that's like a great lesson in like being more critical of like institutions and like you know learning more about the institution itself and thinking like well where could their bias come in Mm -hmm. and like how does that relate to like what I'm learning and what I'm reading while I'm in here yeah like who's telling the story and what do they have to gain off of telling it like a certain way kind of Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day I mean it's still a business Mm -hmm. which is sad but like they are there to make money as well as educate So I think you need to be mindful of that. Yeah. I think like when museums are created and especially um, older museums like the British Museum and even the American Museum of Natural History, the exhibits, the plaques, the displays, everything is created with an older mindset. Um, That mindset that we've been moving away from recently where things are over generalized. You know, African countries are all put together in one area or... Mm -hmm parts of history are erased because it is a little bit dark, like colonialism. That's not something a museum wants to necessarily advertise, especially when they were originally created. So that's kind of what got me interested in museums. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about my story. So I've always jumped at the opportunity to teach my friends about history. In New York, we had a state test in a bunch of different subjects called the Regents. Oh, Um, I remember the Regents. Yeah. (laughs) So the Regents, you know, it was was hard for some people. And I always liked history, so I always wanted to help and tutor. And it was always so fun for me to share my passion with those that are closest to me. I think it's incredibly satisfying. But even though I love to share my knowledge, I knew that I didn't want to become a teacher (laughs) because I really didn't want to be tied down to a curriculum and you know, as we've been talking about, I didn't want to necessarily oversimplify things, which you have to kind of do as a teacher. But, you know, you have to kind of follow this curriculum and it's not something that you necessarily get to create on your own. And I do kind of have some nightmares about kids in my classes um, when I was a child being really mean to my teachers. So I have a lot of respect for school teachers, (laughs) but I knew that's not necessarily what I wanted to do. And that's what made me want to be part of a totally different educational tool, which is museums. 
And I always felt that they provided a visual learning experience that's super open and accessible to the general public. It's not too formal. You can kind of walk through on your own and it can be potentially super fun. So museums and public history in general promote, you know, this aspect of autonomy for the public, which is super appealing to me because someone can simply enter a building or watch a documentary that's perfectly curated to educate. And so people can just walk in and learn and do their own thing. So I want to be able to use my passion for sharing knowledge, the knowledge of history with people that are willing to learn. And all of this sort of ties back to this story of colonialism, imperialism, and all the other isms, because our museums desperately need updating. And like I mentioned before, uh, museums are made for people to learn and enjoy, but I think we do the public a disservice if we aren't giving out the whole story. So think about the things that you learned in college that blew your mind because you were taught something completely different or didn't have the full story. Like, that's basically kind of what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. You know what I mean? And someone that I look up to is Dan Hicks, um, who I mentioned before, who is a professor of contemporary archaeology at the University of Oxford, and he's also a curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum and a fellow of St. Cross College in Oxford. So very accomplished. He has a multitude of books, essays, op-eds, and articles, and he's given so many interviews for a variety of journals and magazines and newspapers, all the things, on all topics concerning museums, material culture, restitution, and more. And he's dedicated a lot of this, a lot of his time to the Benin Bronzes, actually. So I want to talk a little bit about him, too because I think he uh, is also part of what got me interested in this topic, and he's doing the work that I eventually want to get into. So he says, the case for returning the Benin bronzes has never been more compelling. Today, our curatorial challenge is to do more than endlessly tell and retell that story, rewriting the museum labels to point a finger at the history of empire, shuffling artifacts around in our galleries. It's time for us to listen respectfully to the demands for returns from those which these objects of sovereignty and belief are so important. And he says that curating is about understanding the objects in our care, listening to the voices of people who care about them, and being open to the idea that museums can evolve. And I thought that was really profound because he does say that it's more, curating is more than just retelling a story and pointing the finger at empire. And I think it's really important that he says that it's important to lift up others' voices and to really concern ourselves what these other countries want because they are their artifacts. They're owned by them. That was really interesting. And I feel like it's just like the next time I go to a museum or anyone goes to a museum, it's like ask yourself like how did like the exhibits and how did these artifacts actually get here? It's more than likely a product of colonialism in some way, shape or form. And I feel like you don't think about that when you go to a museum. You're just excited to go and, and see like a vase or something like yeah. that. But then when you really do think about it, it's like, oh, there's a dark history here and it's good to expose that and like kind of show the underbelly of that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And I think at your point about like museums needing to change, like I think like I completely agree, like they need to evolve. But I do think sometimes people, especially if they've been in the industry for a while, are so afraid of change. Yeah. And I don't know necessarily why. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, think there's nothing saying that change is bad, like change is good, especially if it is for the better or, you know, raising up people's voices who originally, like, didn't have their voice mm-hmm. heard. Like, that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, because you learn more if you hear more people's perspectives on things. Exactly. I feel like a big thing 
with curators, especially at the British Museum. I don't want to obviously speak for them, but I think a huge thing um, about having such a large and impressive collection is giving up some of that, even if it's the right thing to do. And I think we can all kind of relate to an experience where we've had to give up something or do the right thing when it's not necessarily what we want to do. You know, and there's a multitude of other concerns about shipping the precious artifacts to other countries and, um, you know, Britain being so accessible to so many people and other countries maybe not being so accessible. That's kind of the thought process behind keeping a lot of those things there and why they've been kept there for so long. But I think you're right. It's sometimes it's about doing the right thing and uplifting others' voices. Um, so yeah, that's kind of um, it's what I want to do. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's really exciting. A new face to the museum industry. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> we'll see. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening, learning a little bit about museums and my own story. For Sarah and Emily, I'm Katrina, and tune in two weeks from now for the Anthrophiles. So my sources were The British Museum is Full of Stolen Artifacts, which is a YouTube video by Vox, Soldier's Grandson to Return Items He Looted from Benin City from The Guardian UK, Curator Calls for the Return of Benin Bronzes from The Times London, and the website of Dan Hicks. Our music is Find Your Way Beat by Nana Quabina from the YouTube Free Music Library. Our cover art is designed by Katrina using Canva. Thank you to Professor Haldane and Professor Reedy for editing my script. This podcast was edited by Emily and Sarah and produced by Professor Sarah Reedy. And thank you to the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio for making this podcast possible. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Anthrophiles, and we'll see you next time.